something that <clears throat> comes up quite often in our interviews together with people is uh, what's the point of sitting with all this pain? What's the point of bringing my attention back to restlessness, to boredom, to negativity? You know, it can start to seem like a long, difficult struggle. And it's easy to lose sight of why it's worth paying attention to these things. There's a Tibetan saying, a teaching actually, that talks about turning adverse circumstances or difficult circumstances into a path of liberation. And so that's what I want to talk about tonight. We talk about working with our relationship to what is difficult and painful in our life, in our sitting here, in our life at large. How to relate to what's going on so that we come to realize that what situations that are seemingly adverse and seemingly obstacles are actually, in fact, a very intrinsic and necessary part of our path of understanding. That coming to understand that freedom, understanding, a path that is only right here. And that whatever is arising in the moment is a part of that. And there are no exceptions to this. We get into so much conflict when we sit in our lives, because, well, this is rather simplistic, but largely because we're so conditioned to interpret anything that comes up that's unpleasant as meaning that it's wrong. And pleasant equals wrong, and pleasant equals right. And so when something unpleasant starts to happen, either it's wrong, or I'm wrong, or here in a retreat means I'm doing something wrong, and I have to figure out what it is and change it so that things can get right, which usually means pleasant. But what's really vital for us to understand is that this perception, this interpretation, is completely inaccurate. And so what we're talking about is actually a radical shift in our relationship to life, in our relationship to what's coming up in this moment. And so our retreat, or even one sitting, is a microcosm for the way that we relate in our whole life. So a difficult or painful experience arises here. And it doesn't have to be anything really super intense or deep. It can be a back pain, or maybe you get a cold, or maybe you're allergic to the food, or a lot of restlessness is coming up, or a lot of anger and negativity. Maybe it's simply that the breath isn't clear enough, and I know other times it's been a lot clearer. It's unpleasant because we don't like it. Our tendency is, with any of these things, or anything else that you've probably experienced, at least one thing like that today, we have interpreted as an obstacle. 
that if this would only go away, if I could only fix this, then I could really start meditating. Then I could really get into this retreat. And it shows us that at some level, there's an idea of what, quote, good practice means. And whatever it means, it definitely doesn't include this. So if this could go away, then maybe good practice could begin. And so whether consciously, often it's quite conscious, but sometimes it's quite subtle and unconscious, we don't realize we're making that comparison and assessment, but we get involved in striving to change what's happening. And in doing that, in trying to change what's happening and pulling away from it and deny it, we're denying what's true in this moment. We're moving out of the truth of this moment, trying to get somewhere else that matches some concept we have of what the truth is. A movement away from truth. And what I found one of the things that's been most profound for me as my practice continues is I keep understanding more and more that we grow in understanding, we grow in love and compassion, not in spite of all the difficulties and painful experiences that come our way, but we grow through them in a way that they're almost necessary. And I don't want to get into this kind of Pollyanna as, oh, I'm so glad I'm sick, it's such a gift. But really we do grow through the difficulties when our relationship to what is coming is one of understanding and acceptance. In the Buddhist cosmology, it talks about many different planes of existence, from hell realms up to these really high god realms, of which human is, I think, just from the body. And, but it's said that being born as a human is a very fortunate and rare birth, a very fortunate opportunity. Because, and this is what's important, not whether you want to believe in the cosmology, but it's a very rare and important opportunity for growth and understanding for freedom because in our human realm, for most of us, there is a proper balance of pain and pleasure. In other words, they say that we as humans, and most of us here, have this certainly plenty of difficulty in our lives. But for most of us, it's not so much that we're completely overwhelmed. And there certainly are humans in this world who are completely ground down by the amount of suffering. Most of us here, would, I think, I would actually say all of us, if that's not the case. And there's enough pleasure that we can open and be nourished and grow in understanding. It's said that in some of the higher data realms, there's too much pleasure. They just kind of get into hanging out in these pleasure gardens and lose all their motivation and go to sleep to get to practice, or motivated to investigate. Um, one teacher says that pleasure puts you to sleep and pain wakes you up. And we wish it were the other way around, but <laughs> not the case. 
But I want to acknowledge, certainly in my own life and in this world, there are definitely times when the amount of suffering, the amount of pain can seem quite overwhelming. Whether it's uh, in our own being as we're practicing and we're confronting deeper levels of physical pain, deeper levels of emotional pain, there's some strong grief in our life. And sometimes as at this period in the world's history and all the conflict in the Middle East and how that, how we're all involved in that and how it impacts on us, sometimes the suffering that's going on when you really open and turn into it can seem unbearable and overwhelming. And there are times that it can just feel, how can I possibly begin to open to suffering? No, it's too much, I just want to turn away. So how can we begin to change our relationship to the unpleasant, to the difficult? I want to share something that has been and continues to be really vital for me in working in this area, in, in giving me the energy to keep investigating, to keep meeting and opening what is difficult. And that is really finding what inspires me to want to know the truth. What arises in me a sense of commitment, a sense of urgency to really turn my energy into facing what's the truth of this moment. It might be different, you know, for each of us. For me, something that that does this is a deep appreciation of the, the favorableness of my situation. Actually, I often feel an incredibly deep gratitude for the fortunate aspects of my life. And this gets triggered off, it can be triggered off just when I open my eyes and start looking around at what's going on in the world. Um, for example, I just last week came back from India. And whenever I leave this country, that is a so-called third world country, it really wakes me up to the amazing possibilities and opportunities that I have in my life. Seeing the grinding poverty, the people that are just working from morning to night under really horrible conditions just to get enough food to eat for that day, if they're lucky. And there's no way to take a day off. You take a day off, you don't eat. You don't have anywhere to live. Also, many people, uh, two years ago when I was in India, I went to Bodh Gaya, which is the spot where the Buddha was enlightened, and it's a shrine now, and there's a uh, uh, descendant of the original Bodhi tree that he sat under. And it's a real uh, shrine spot for Buddhists, and Buddhists come from all over the world to this, and I found it very inspiring. There's a real, a real energy, a real power in that place. And we were commenting on how there's a lot of people that live right there, you know, and they make their living uh, running tea shops and selling things to the tourists, but there's really no interest. Not that there should be interest in Buddhism only per se, but there's just really no interest in awakening. You know, let's just live our lives. And, and so there's a good fortune to have enough health to practice, enough leisure time, enough, enough to eat, the opportunity to practice, and also the interest, which is really rather rare in the world. And so when I 
in a situation like that, when it awakens my sense of gratitude, it gives me the energy to inquire of myself, all right, I have this incredibly fortunate life, what's really important? What really matters to me in my life? What do I want to do with my energy? And when that question comes up, for me, the answer is really clear, you know, to know the truth, to know love and compassion and to share, to share the truth, to know peace. And that, really acknowledging that in one's heart, I find to be a very powerful force. It arouses quite of itself this sense of commitment, the sense of urgency, and a real willingness to open to and face whatever it is that's arising right now, because this is the way that I can come to understand what freedom is, what peace is. Sometimes it feels to me, and in talking with friends, that sometimes people are almost afraid to really let that acknowledgement in of what's really important to one. Almost as if, you know, you might be disappointed. I think, well, I really want to come to freedom. But, you know, that might be for the Buddha, it might be for someone who's sitting in a cave in the Himalayas. But I'm just an ordinary person, you know, trying to live my life. And I'm not good enough for that. And almost a fear to really let it in, to really acknowledge the strength of one's purpose. But I, I think it's important to realize that as human beings, we all have the potential for freedom. We all have the potential to be liberated. And that's what's so inspiring to me, actually, when I reflect on the Buddha. When we took the refuges, the first night of the retreat, taking refuge in the Buddha, to me is not refuge in the idea of him as a historical person, but what he represents as a human being, same as me, same as you, and that that's our heritage as human beings, that's all of our potential. Being at the Bodhi tree somehow humanized it for me. Oh, this is just a real place, a dusty little village, nothing so special. And the Buddha might have been a special human being, but still he was a human being, and we're all special too. And so really letting in that acknowledgement, that potential for ourselves, not holding back out of some idea we have of our limitations. And this inspiration really gives me the courage, the conviction to open to what's true right now, a willingness to face the moment, a commitment to simply bring full presence of mind, presence of being to this moment right now. And that's all. The Buddha said quite often, if it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. He's very pragmatic. And it is possible. And so for me, being willing to open to the possibility to really acknowledge it to myself inspires deep energy, sense of urgency, and the willingness to meet whatever's arising. This is a quote from Nisargadatta, who is a, an Indian wise man. He says, Nothing, physical or mental, can give you freedom. 
You are free. Once you understand that your bondage is of your own making, and you cease forging the chains that bind you. So can we really give our hearts and minds to this exploration, not binding ourselves with the thought that, eh, it's too hard, I could never do it, this me hurts too much, let's forget it. Stop forging the chains that keep us limited. Still, you know, one can have a moment, or even an hour, maybe even a day, of this really renewed openness and commitment that a courage that really lets us come back to a difficult situation and be there in a new way, with openness, with mindfulness, with spaciousness. But still, a half an hour later, a day later, a minute later, everything clamps down again, you know. It seems so continuously difficult. You know, oh, drum up the inspiration again. Why, you know, why? I keep asking myself this, why? Joseph spoke last night about desire, about the power of that, of the tendency in the mind. That's really what I want to speak to now. It's such a deeply, deeply conditioned tendency of mind, or habit of mind, that when a pleasant experience comes, the mind, the body even, leans into it. When an unpleasant experience comes, it's just the reverse, aversion, which is just the flip side of desire away, move away, block it out, deny it, change it. And when something neutral comes, we don't even notice it. We're bored and we space out and we look for something else. This is really what the Buddha spoke to in his first and core teaching, which Sylvia mentioned the other night, the, the Four Noble Truths. Just this tendency of mind, keying and flowing, which can be so subtle, but it has such a profound effect on the way that we relate to our lives and the way that we experience our lives. So I want to talk a little bit about it again, especially the first two of these noble truths, because they're really quite observable in action, even just in a few moments of sitting or walking here. So this first this first teaching, this piece of dukkha or unsatisfactoriness. From the whole range from obvious deep pain and grief and sadness and bearableness to the, the unsatisfactoriness, the insecurity of impermanence, the fact that nothing lasts, that everything's transient, that no matter how pleasant something is, it's always fleeting. There's no resting place. There's nothing that can give us permanent pleasure. This is actually a very deep experience of unsatisfactoriness. And it seems really obvious. When I think about it, I wonder, well, why do we have to make this big proclamation, you know, the first noble truth? It's not like it's a secret. But 
when you look, you know, you don't really believe it. I saw this ad in the uh, New York Times magazine that on the top it says permanent pleasures. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, right, this is a permanent pleasures, I'll buy some books. You know, it's just anything can give us permanent pleasures. But we keep thinking we're going to find it somewhere out there in some experience. This movement of the mind towards pleasure and away from unpleasant is so, so deeply conditioned. And our ability to deny that it's happening, and our ability to deny the truth of painful or unsatisfactory experiences is truly amazing to me. A couple of examples. One kind of rather shocking to me in its and it's obviousness is one time I was in a, in a hospital and a doctor was doing some usual but fairly painful procedure and having a hard time doing it. It was really hurting. And at some point, tears started coming out of my eyes. And he just stopped and looked at me and said, what's the matter with you? This doesn't hurt. <laughs> you can understand. It's too hard to let in pain. You know, it's just better to deny that it's even happening. Or I watch myself when I'm traveling through India. There's so much pain and suffering. It's all right out on the street. You know, in five minutes walking through a village in India, I see more physical pain and suffering than I see in 10 years in this country. And I watch how long can I stay open to all the starving people, people with the skin and bones, to the beggars, to the lepers, without any hands or feet sometimes. Uh, maybe five minutes. You know, maybe ten minutes. It's overwhelming. And I just watch how I want to shut down, look straight ahead, not look around, not feel it. It's really quite an amazing thing to watch. I was watching that a lot this time. On a more mundane, much more day-to-day ordinary level, seeing how, but not really noticing what's going on, we keep doing ordinary experiences and then wonder why it doesn't satisfy us, why life still doesn't seem quite fulfilling. This example I've used before is that I belong to a health club near here, and one time in the fall, I was with a friend, and it was at the end of a long day, we were really tired, we needed to refresh ourselves and get out, and said, well, we'll go swimming and stay together, and that'll be really refreshing. And it should have been, and we thought it was. But then we got together and reconstructed what actually happened. It's quite illuminating. Now we drive there first, it's a half an hour drive, and the whole time it's looking for it. Okay, we'll get there, it'll be nice. We get there, I went into the, he was a man, I went to the women's dressing room, which they kept quite chilly, and I'm very sensitive to cold. So I was hurrying up, getting on my bathing suit, had to take a shower before I went, and this made me even colder. So this was extremely unpleasant. And I was hurrying through it to jump in the pool, which also was quite chilly. So I got in the pool and I had goosebumps, but well, I'll start swimming. I'm swimming, swimming, swimming. After two laps, I finally got warm. And I thought, oh, this is nice. I got half a lap, maybe. Then my arms started hurting and I started getting bored. Oh, well, 
I'll hurry up and finish this, then I can go get in the sauna. So I hurried up and finished that, and went and got in the sauna, which was oh, really nice. So, you know, I don't know, two minutes, three minutes. Then the bench started to hurt my sacrum because I can't really lie on hardwood. Then I was really sweaty, really hot. Oh, I feel really dizzy. I've got to get out of here. <laughs> went out, stood outside for about two minutes. Oh, it's really cold. Now I'm okay. Now I can go back in the sauna. Went back in, repeat, went out, got dressed, went upstairs, and we both said, that was great. <laughs> and this is life. This is nothing unusual. And the question might come up, who wants to look at life this closely? It's too depressing. You know, I thought I was having a good time, let's keep it that way. But I actually know none of you would be here going through that if you really thought that everything was hunky-dory. And I also really want to point out that that's not my experience. I don't think that's the experience at all that looking this closely, that really acknowledging the extent of unsatisfactoriness is depressing or oppressive, but it's quite the reverse. In our daily life, for instance, when I was going swimming at this place, because we can keep moving, as soon as something unpleasant, even slightly unpleasant, it's not even real suffering, just a little unpleasant comes, can immediately move, go to the next thing, we sort of mask the fact that things are so unsatisfactory. And so we don't understand why we're not feeling fulfilled. We don't really get it. What's this good feeling that something's out of sync? But when we really open up and begin to look and acknowledge what's actually going on moment to moment, far from being a sense that, oh no, I can't bear it, to me, it's quite the reverse. It's a huge relief. It's like there's no, no more need for pretense. I think Sharon uses the, the quotation a lot of some Miss America from 1950 or something, where they interview her 20 or 30 years later, and she said, I'm just so tired of smiles. And it's like there's no need for pretense. It doesn't mean complaining. It just means knowing what's really going on. And I find this over and over, as you know, you have the same insight over and over and over, but sometimes have deeper and deeper. And each time that I find suddenly in my life, I feel caught up in some kind of struggle, and I realize, and it has to get to enough suffering that I'm actually driven to investigate. You know, if I think I can actually fix it, then I keep trying to fix it. But when that stops working, and I'm actually driven to investigate, and I invariably see, that somewhere I'm still thinking there's some payoff. Somehow I'm still thinking I can somehow arrange my external situation and my internal situation so that everything will be all right and I'll be happy. And as soon as I see I'm doing this, and oh, that's right, that's absolutely impossible. There's nothing, no experience internally or externally that's going to last, that can make me lastingly happy. And knowing that is incredibly liberating. It just frees up this whole struggle, and there's actually a huge sense of joy and happiness arises. And this has happened to me over and over and over.
another quote from Nisargadatta, quotation. Once you have grasped the truth that the world is full of suffering, you'll find the urge and the energy to go beyond it. Really far from being a calamity, it's a strong force of liberation, really seeing what's going on. And so the seeing, this acknowledgement of suffering moves us from a relationship to our life of fear or blame or self-judgment or aversion to one of clear seeing of the possibility of acceptance of clear action instead of reaction of joy. It allows for the clear seeing that opens us into the true nature of reality. So, the first noble truth is actually a very, very profound teaching. You have to skim the surface of it. The second truth, the Buddha spoke of the cause of this unsatisfactoriness, is again, not in the difficult situations themselves, but in that movement of mind, that movement of mind towards the pleasant of craving, of clinging. The word actually translates as thirst, you know, that yearning for the pleasant. And also that includes the movement of mind away from the unpleasant, that aversion. This movement towards and away, this deeply ingrained, kind of almost unconscious reaction to stimuli. This is what distorts our perception of reality. It's why we don't know and live in truth, because we're caught in this moving to and fro. And so out of that, we keep on forging the chains that bind us. We keep looking for that permanent pleasure. An example that's uh, often used in the scriptures is of someone who's holding on to an iron ball that's red hot and burning, but somehow afraid to put it down. And so the very thing that's causing the suffering is afraid to let go of. Mindfulness, the quality of clear non-judging attention that we're cultivating here, is our very strong ally in waking up to and being free from this tendency of mind of clinging and aversion. Again, using this example of the ball. At first, there's incredible suffering. One doesn't even know what's going on, you know. You might not even acknowledge that pain is happening. It's assumed that we need that ball. You know, it's just taken as a given. With increasing attention, with mindfulness, we start to really notice the pain. And we know if we could put the ball down, it would go away, but we need it, that ball. We're really afraid to let go of it. Somehow we think it'll bring us happiness. Or maybe somehow it's just so familiar. And we'd much rather have something familiar and painful than to let go and move into the unknown. That's really scary. So we hold on. 
with continuing mindfulness, we start to see that actually all that's binding us to that suffering is our desire and our fear. And at some point, we will get the senselessness of it, and we can just let go. Seeing the reality is the power that can free us from the burden. Understanding what's really going on is so powerful. We don't need someone to come from the outside and yank that ball away. We merely need to gain continued presence of attention, and the truth reveals itself when we put down the burden. I'm going to say that middle portion can be a hard time. The time when we know it's just because we're holding on, that it hurts so much, but we somehow can't put it down. That can be really hard, and sometimes it can seem to last a really long time. And we don't need to think of it in terms of time, because any moment is the moment that let us be clearly enough to let go. But even so hard as it is, this is the suffering that wakes us up. Because we're there, there's the right attitude, the willingness to be with it, open to it, and understand what's going on. The Buddha said once that suffering either ripens as confusion or it ripens as search. And I really love that because it's just so obvious the two different ways that we can relate to the same experience. So I take something really simple, quite not too complex, seemingly, you're sitting here and there's a pain in the knee. It ripens as confusion. There's a pain in the knee, we notice it, there's a lot of annoyance. Well, if I was only being mindful, then it wouldn't hurt so much. If I was relating to it correctly, I wouldn't be suffering. Why is this here anyway? We get into self-judgment, we get into judgment about meditation, we get into a real struggle with ourselves. Then we say, okay, forget it, I'm just going back to the breath, which proves to be impossible. And then we get into a whole other string of self-judgment. This is pain that is ripening as confusion. It's just getting into more and more than that. Somehow, confusion, because there's a sense that the pain and the dissatisfaction has to be fixed, that it's a sign of doing something wrong. The same suffering can ripen as fruit. Which again is a shift in the attitude, not in the physical sensation. Really important to remember that while mindfulness, the power of mindfulness, is a very penetrating awareness, a real clear knowing of what's happening in the moment. But the reason we can know what's happening in the moment is because the energy of mindfulness is also totally nonviolent. It's totally non-discriminating. With mindfulness, does not choose to be with pleasant experience and ignore unpleasant experience. When an experience or sensation arises, the energy of mindfulness, it's not mindfulness, it's like, well, I don't really want to look at that one now. Let's wait till something more pleasant comes along. This is just the, the tendency of mind again, the craving and the aversion. Mindfulness is very focused, but totally nonviolent quality, very interested, but spacious. And so, 
when a pain arises with that quality of mindfulness, simply noting, noticing, investigating the sensations simply as they are. Noticing and noting the unpleasantness, also any aversion or dislike or fear that arises in the mind, that's all fine. Just allowing it to be as it is and noticing it clearly. And whenever the whole whirl of thoughts and confusion starts, seeing that as thinking and gently coming back to the actual experience. Not to change anything. And that's what's so important. But to know for oneself what's really happening. Because that's the truth of the moment. And we do this over and over. And we'll often find there might be just one moment when you experience quite deeply that suddenly what was so excruciating and unbearable and filled with aversion is suddenly, oh, oh yeah, it's sharp sensation, and that's all. It's totally okay. And that could just last for a moment, but it's an incredibly illuminating moment. Like suddenly, oh, right. It really is in the relationship that's the suffering and not in the physical sensation. This is the movement from confusion to truth. I think it was Ajahn Buddhadasa, a Thai meditation master, who said that there's suffering that leads to more suffering and suffering that leads to the end of suffering. And so that's really what mindfulness and opening to whatever the rising is about. Sometimes what's arising is suffering, but it's the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. I do want to emphasize that at the end of suffering does not mean the end of unpleasant experience. The two are not equated. Again, the suffering is in the relationship, not in the pleasantness or unpleasantness of experience. And in that moment, say, when one was clearly with the sensation in me, and suddenly it was just sensation and aversion and no problem, that's when we really see that the suffering is in the resistance in the denial of the situation, not in the situation itself. This is what I call using adverse circumstances as the path, as our way into understanding what the truth of the moment is, into understanding that peace is beyond the present or absence of pleasant and unpleasant. As long as we're unaware of these tendencies of mind, of avoidance, of clinging, then so long our perception of reality continues to be distorted. An image that I like a lot, that speaks to me, is it's as if when we're unaware of these movements of mind, if we're in a room, if we think it's a prison, and although the door is wide open, we don't see it. Because we're so busy, we figure, well, somehow I can get this furniture all arranged right, then it'll be more pleasant. And we're so busy rearranging the furniture to try and make it more livable that we never think to just stop a minute and open up, and then we see, oh, the door's wide open. There's no problem. It's almost inconceivable, though, that the real suffering is in our need to make the situation more pleasant rather than just stop and be with what's there. So in our practice here, to know that any time there's a sense of struggle, 
a sense of conflict. It signals that there's something happening in that moment that's not being accepted, that somehow is not okay. It signals that in that moment there's a movement away from the truth of what's happening into some idea of what we wish was happening. And so we can use struggle as a signal to come home, as a signal to just come back to rest in what's happening right now, and knowing that that's okay, that we can do that. We don't need to be afraid of this moment. We said the doctor again. What the mind knows is restlessness, with all its many modes and grades. The pleasant are considered superior, and the painful are discounted. What we usually call progress is merely a changeover from the unpleasant to the pleasant. Changes can't bring us to the changeless. I feel that that's really profound. Just keep trying to change all the unpleasant to the pleasant because changes can't bring us to the changes. Let's stop rearranging the furniture and just settle into being here in the truth of this moment. I obviously don't mean to imply that this is easy or always easy. It might be easy in one moment. But again, this movement of clinging and aversion is so strong and so often unconscious that it can be quite subtle and very hard to be aware of it. I also want to say that even when we are aware of it, there are times for many of us that we don't become balanced and spacious all at once, and it doesn't just stay that way. Nothing just stays that way. And so sometimes the suffering that we run into, as I said earlier on, can seem in that moment to be stronger than the balance of mind that's there to meet it in that moment. Now I find for myself, for most people I know, we all have moments or hours or days where we really feel like we're drowning, you know, that we're overwhelmed and suffering. I think now there's a war that's going on and just the constant influx of information and all the mix of our emotions and reactions, at least of my own, it can be excruciating and painful. And there's certainly times that it seems like my clarity and the balance in my mind is not equal to the amount of suffering that seems to be coming in. That can even happen often on in a sitting when you have that one particular pain that lasts from every sitting and gets worse and worse and just seems to be excruciating. And it's like to say that often, especially as we practice for a while, we can sometimes turn the concept of opening the pain against ourselves. We use it as another way to beat ourselves up. Like, well, I should be able to face this, you know. I should be able to stay without moving, no matter how much it hurts. I should be able to stay open and loving in the face of huge conflict going on in the world, you know. I should be able not to be drowning in grief, even though someone I really love has died or gone away. 
And, you know, sometimes people in a sitting can force yourself to stay with pain, and sometimes this works. You come back to a place of balance and equanimity of mind. Sometimes we end up in a super struggle of willpower and self-judgment and forcing. The conflict gets even stronger. Please can remember that mindfulness is never strident. Mindfulness is not forceful. We can't force mindfulness. We can't force openness. We can't force acceptance. The kind of contradictions. Mindfulness is allowing. And so from time to time in retreat in our life, we might find that there's a point where we're just feeling completely submerged. And opening is out of the question. We just hardly even know who we are and what's going on. The Buddha spoke of what he calls skillful avoidance. And it's important. Not the avoidance of aversion. This is not like a concept to say, oh, good, skillful avoidance, I don't have to sit the rest of the day because you know, it's kind of tired. You know, it's not a aversion. But it's the avoidance when we realize mindfulness isn't happening. What's happening is we're getting overwhelmed. And so we can move in gently, move in slowly. When there's a really excruciating pain, it doesn't mean turn your attention there and stay there for the hour until you feel like you're made out of concrete and you're going to crack from the tension. It's moving slowly when you really feel no more mindfulness is happening when you're just in a knot. Open up the attention. Come back to the breath. Feel the whole body. Have a wideness of attention. This is skillful avoidance. It's not spacing out, but it's skillfully bringing some nutrients to the spirit, to the mind. And then again, gently move back into what's happening. Never from forcing does the truth open up. Also, it's very important not to, as we begin to think about or reflect on opening to the difficult, to realize that difficult and unpleasant is part of our experience, it's not all of our experience. And so sometimes people tend to get unbalanced on that side, you know, kind of discount or ignore or avoid anything pleasant that's happening. This is also the reason. If in the moment there's a sense of joy, that's fine. Acknowledge it. Again, we don't want to cling, but we need to acknowledge that that's what's happening. Not get unbalanced in the other direction. Again, we said the By themselves, neither pleasure nor pain enlightens one. Only understanding enlightens us. Only understanding. So don't undervalue a moment where you're present with whatever's happening with a clarity of attention. One of those moments where there's real mindfulness, it's non-judging, really seeing, feeling clearly, so you know there's no problem. Don't undervalue it, even if the next moment things seem like a total struggle. Because that one moment of real mindfulness, presence, clarity, non-judging, is very powerful 
when we know for ourselves what the true relationship is, we, that's the true understanding of the heart and mind. Not understanding through the intellect, but understanding from what we've seen and known for ourselves. And that's the understanding that can lead to liberation. And this is the understanding that gives us the courage, the conviction, to know that we can be with whatever arises in our path. We don't have to be afraid of facing whatever's arising in this moment. It's not like we have a choice as to what arises in our path anyway. Really, the only choice is how we can meet it. I just want to close with a quotation from the third Zen Patriarch. One of my, it's a long poem, this is a little piece, but it's one of my favorite writings. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. Indeed, it is due to our choosing to accept or reject that we do not see the true nature of things. Let's sit here a few minutes.